Good evening, everyone. Um, if you have your Bibles with you this evening, uh, will you open them up to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, verses 4 to 14. That is the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, verses 4 to 14. I, I'm sure some of you have already an idea of what one of the verses are in that passage. It's one of our favorite to quote, um, favorite to have on coffee mugs, uh, have uh, hashtags with, um, you name it. This, is, this has been used for it. Uh, but this is the passage from chapter 29, verses 4 to uh, 14, is the whole section that we're going to be looking at this evening. Um, and as we do that, as we dive into this really encouraging verse, this verse that is super, super meaningful to a lot of us, there's this need for us to understand the context in which we find such an incredible verse given uh, to a, a specific people at a specific time. And uh, if we're going to apply it to ourselves, man, we need to really understand where it falls in in the, in the history of Israel. And to do that properly, we have to go all the way back to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20. 28, where God makes a, a twofold promise to the people of Israel, and, and he says this to them. The first part of the promise is one of blessing. He says, if you follow me, if you keep my statutes, if you keep my commands, if you do all those things, I will be your God and you will be my people. Man, I am going to bless you out of your socks. Your fields are going to produce much grain. Your herds are going to grow in size. Your families are going to become large. Uh, you are going to be a nation that is seen as great amongst other nations. They're going to come and pay homage to you, praise you. Um, you're going to defeat your enemies in war, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. But the second part of that promise is a one of cursing. He says, however, if you don't do that... If you don't follow me, if you, you start to pursue the other gods around uh, in the other nations, chase after them, don't do my commands and my statutes, what I'm going to do is I'm going to curse you. And there's this long list in chapter 28 of cursings, and if you look at them, they progressively get worse and worse and worse. And the reason why he does that, and we'll, well, actually I'll chat about that now, but we'll, we'll see when we, we see the progressiveness, it starts off with things such as, man, you're going to get frustrated at work. Work's just going to be tough. You're going to notice the fields haven't produced as much as they should. Your, your cattle aren't producing as much as they should. Uh, and then it's going to get a little worse than that. You're going to find out that there's drought, that there's pestilence, that there's famine that takes over the city. And then after that, you're going to see that there's going to be a nation that's going to rise up against you. And they're going to fight you, and I'm not going to protect you. And worst case scenario is that at what case I'm going to do is I'm going to send you into exile. I'm going to take you as a people and I'm going to scatter you everywhere. And God does this. He gives this list of cursings because he wants the people to, of Israel to know, man, when work starts to get frustrating and the harvest wasn't good this year, they go, there's something wrong. We've sinned. We've messed up. And, and we can return to God. Or when famine starts to take place, hey, this is a sign from God. We need to return back to Him. We need to come back to Him. And if they did that, God would restore them. You see that in, particularly in Deuteronomy chapter 30. He says, man, if you come back to me, I'm going to make you a great nation again. I'm going to bless you again. I will be your God and you will be my people. And what happens throughout the whole of the Old Testament from Deuteronomy chapter 28 onwards is we see that God keeps his promise, particularly in the book of Judges. We see that there is this cycle that takes place. The people don't uh, follow God. 
they don't, uh, there's no leader to lead them, and so they just start serving all the gods around them. So God sends the curse, and what happens is a nation rises, rises up against them. The people of Israel are oppressed under difficult situations. So what do they do? They cry out to God. God hears their prayer. He raises up a judge, such as Gideon, Samson, Deborah. He rises up a judge, and they defeat the enemy, liberate the people. The people serve God for a generation or two, and then we go back to square one again of serving other gods and the cycle takes place and we have 12 judges and eventually we come along and we get kings and the first king is Saul and he does a, a bang average job at best and so God what he does is he gets a a, um, a new uh, king in place he anoints David David becomes king and David becomes the poster boy for all kings afterwards not because David was a saint not at all David uh, did some nasty things he would uh uh, have so much blood on his, hand, on his hands that he could not build the temple. He would have an affair, kill the husband of the person he had an affair because the lady he had an affair with was now pregnant. So he wasn't a great guy at best. But there was a thing about David that was great, is that most of the time he was a man after God's own heart. And this becomes the standard in which all kings after David are judged by. Are they a king that lead the people back to God? Are they pursuing God and are they bringing the people along? Man, you could be great politically, you could be great economically, you could fight wars and win them, but if you did not lead the people back to God, you were seen as a bad king. You were always a good king, regardless of how poor you were at the other stuff if you led the people to God. And so after David, we have Solomon. Solomon, uh, after him, there is a split in the nation of Israel. Now, that's never a good thing. There's two kings. That's never great. There's this northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, they have ten tribes, and we have the southern kingdom, which consists of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Are you still following me? Good. And so what happens is with the northern kingdom, there is never, ever, 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 and one more time, ever a good king. Never, ever, ever, ever a good king. They always, man, they were great at other stuff, but they never, ever pursued after God and led the people of, of the northern kingdom to God. They never did it. They always chased after other gods. And what pretty much happens is God will rise up a nation called the Syrians who will come out and wipe out the northern kingdom. There will be a war. Israel will lose the war. And the way the Syrians got rid of a nation, they did something very clever, is they would interbreed amongst the people. And so they would just kind of wipe out your, your nationality because suddenly you were a mixed race of different types of people. You weren't a, you weren't pure Jews anymore. You were a bunch of others. And so they lost their identity and they kind of ceased to exist. However, the southern kingdom, they have six good kings, which might sound good, but actually out of the northern and southern kingdom, there were 42 kings and they only had six, which pretty much was bad most of the time with an odd occurrence of someone being good. But there's this king called Manasseh. He is the worst of the worst king. He's literally called the worst king that has ever gone before. He is the worst. And to a point that he would go and serve other gods that he would build high places on pretty much every high place, every mountaintop there would be, or hill, there would be a high place to worship other gods. But the worst case scenario for him was he worshipped a god called Asherah. Now Asherah was a God that required you to worship him by burning your children. And well, I don't know if anyone laughed, but that wasn't funny. Um, <laughs> 
he would, he would, and he, what he would do is he would go and he would burn his son. And, uh, and he would take the image and he would go and he would put it in God's temple and allow people to worship this God in his temple. Where God would get, as you can imagine, furious. To a point that he says, regardless of what happens from here on out, I am going to send the southern kingdom, which is no, it was the only one there, I'm going to send Israel into exile. No matter what happens. Now, God's hand is but stayed because Manasseh will live for 55 years and then his son will come along. He reigns for two to three years before he's killed. But then his, his grandson comes along and that king is Josiah. He's a great king. He's literally the opposite of his grandfather, does massive reforms, does awesome stuff. And God waits until Josiah dies. But when Josiah dies, his son does a bad job, typical. And God comes and he sends along the Babylonians. And they wipe out the southern kingdom. Take them out. They leave no stone unturned. They destroy Judah. They destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. And there's a lot of people that die. But what the Babylonians do compared to other nations is that they would take the very best of the best. The young, the skilled, people in prominent positions, people in leadership positions. And they would take them back to their own town. They will take them back to Babylon. And the reason for that was because if you take the best of the best with you, man, it's going to benefit your city. And they would leave the frail, they would leave those who had no skills and had no, had no ability at all behind because they know they could never gather themselves together and actually do anything worthwhile to rise up against them. So they would just leave them behind. But the journey from Jerusalem to Babylon, we just think nowadays, man, it could have been pretty quick, would have taken between three to four months as captives, prisoners of war, in chains. You've just lost your livelihood. Friends and family have been murdered and killed. So you've got to just kind of imagine the hate that is building up for the city that they are going towards, the people, these Babylonians that they are heading off towards their hometown. There's this disappointment amongst the Jews. There's this sense of hopelessness that never, nothing's ever going to be the same. But there might have been a glimmer of hope in that they thought, man, if we Repent that God will restore us and bring us back. And it's in this context, being in Babylon after all of this has taken place, that Jeremiah writes the passage that we are going to look at this evening. You followed me? You got that? Because I can't do that again. Okay. All right. So we're going to read. I'm reading from the ESV. We'll be reading from uh, verse 4, if I can ever open up this bottle. Jeez, luck. Um, <laughs> this looks like such a pansy trying to open up a bottle. <laughs> All right. Verse 4 to 14. It goes as follows. Thus says the Lord of hosts, uh, the God of Israel, to all exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, uh, Sorry, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city, which I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive uh, you and do not listen to their dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. He has verse 10. 
For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you. I will visit you and fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. I will, after 70 years of being in Babylon, I will, I will bring you back to Jerusalem. And this is the verse that we all know and love. It says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord's plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your hearts. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places which I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. So, Scripture doesn't say this, but I'm just going to use my imagination a little bit this evening, is that as this letter arrives from Jerusalem to the exiles in Babylon, I can only imagine that there's a bit of anticipation and excitement. Because the, here is the letter from Jeremiah the prophet. The, the previous prophets, the other prophets, all declared, man, things were going to be great. Don't worry. You are fine with God. God, the Babylonians are going to come, but God is going to defeat them on your behalf, and you'll be okay, and you will stay here. But Jeremiah was the only one saying, no, that ain't going to happen. You're going into exile. Get ready, prepare, repent, get right with God because you're going. And so here is the man that got it right. All of them got it wrong. And he sends a letter to them telling them what God is going to do. And in a sense, you can imagine there was this, this anticipation as he, he received this letter that maybe, just maybe, Jeremiah is going to say that God's saying, pack your bags for tomorrow we go back. Get ready, prepare yourselves, have your staffs ready, have your bags packed, just like they did in when they left Egypt when God came into the final plague and sent them off into the wilderness towards the promised land. Maybe God will be doing the same thing. Hopeful, just a little bit. We will hear a word from the Lord. And yet God comes out of left field. Instead of saying, pack your bags, he says, build houses. That takes some time. Plant gardens. Enjoy its fruit so you have to plant, wait for it to grow, enjoy its harvest. Give your kids into marriage, take for yourself wives and, and husbands, Get, make your, uh, your, your families nice and large. Don't worry about long journeys and being pregnant because this is going to take some time. And the worst thing for them, I'm sure, was when God said, man, benefit the city. Be a part of the welfare of the city. Man, they must have hated this city. And yet, yeah, God is saying, be, do well in the city, not only for yourselves, but for the city itself. Because in its welfare, your welfare will be there. And church, the reason why I think God came and said this was because I think God knew that the people of Israel had their eyes on Jerusalem only. They had their eyes so fixed on going back to the land that God had given them. They had been so fixed on going home that God realized, man, they were never going to do anything in the season that they found themselves in because they were so focused on the next season, not the now. That God wanted them to say, no, no, take, fix your eyes, take your eyes off uh, Jerusalem and put it on the season now. Because I have a plan for you now. I have a plan for you in the season you find yourself in for my glory to do much in this city with you. And if your eyes are too fixed on Jerusalem, you're going to miss it. And when I was praying for particularly the service, 
asking myself, Lord, asking myself, asking the Lord, what do I need to preach on? What do you want to say? I felt the Lord say strongly for the six, more than the others, that God has a place for you in the season that you find yourself in now. He has a plan for you. He does. And the danger that we often have is that we often look to the next season rather than the now. We are constantly looking towards Jerusalem. When this thing finishes, then I will do. Man, when business quiets down and things just ease up a little because a business is great and going well, I have to benefit from this season. So I must make sure I use it well. Then I will do what God has planned for me. Man, business is bad. Complete opposite. Business is bad. It was going great, but now it's bad. So I need to make sure I work hard because I need to make sure that things get up and go. I'm worried about finances. And then I'll do. And for those of you in high school, so often it is oh, focused on varsity. Oh man, the life, the next season, things are coming. Work hard now for then. But I want you to know that God has placed you in the school that you're in, in the class that you're in for the season. Com serves interns that are here. Man, the same's for you. You see, London is a pit stop. Something, you're going to go and then you're going to leave the city. No, God has placed you in the city for the now. Man, it might just be a pit stop, but he has put you here for a reason. He's put you here for a reason. And the danger is that we look forward and we miss the now. And church, I want you to know that God has a plan for you. Israel got this right. They listened to God. And man, what happened? I'm not going to tell the stories, but you will know them when I say these names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Men in prominent positions doing what? Causing waves of glory in Babylon because they were faithful. They did much for the city and they were faithful to God. Man, the same is with Daniel. Second highest in command. Brings much glory to God because he was faithful and did much. He took the season now. Nehemiah, Ezra, other men who did great things. And I want you to know that you are in a season that God wants to use you. You are? You find yourselves there. And we can be assured that God has a plan for us. Man, verse 11, right? The one that we love. Verse 11. One that we got it on our mugs and on our shirts and have camp talks and bands and all that other kind of jazz that comes with this verse. This verse tells us, these encouraging words, that I have a plan for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare or peace, not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. This incredible promise that God has a plan for us. The danger is with most verses like this, is that we can take a verse like this and make it self-centered rather than God-centered. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that we can take this, the fact that God has a plan for us and the fact that we have plans and we come to God and say, you, you like doing planned things here on my plan, so make it happen, right? Man, this is the high school or this is the varsity I want to go to, Lord, so make it happen. This is the, the job that I want to have, so make it happen. Oh, this is the guy I want to marry and he's the only one that makes me happy, so that means you need to make this happen. And as a result, what we do is we kind of come to God as a Father Christmas, as a genie in a bottle, and kind of say, these are my wishes. This is what I need to have. Get it done. But the proper application of this verse is not coming to God and telling him what he want, needs to do. It's not coming and saying, Lord, this verse should say, I have a plan for you to fulfill your plans. 
But rather the proper application of this verse is coming to God, man, laying our plans at his feet. We come and we tell God our dreams. That is great. You tell him your plans. You ask him to bless them. You, you come and say, Lord, this is what I desire. But at the end of that prayer, you say, Lord, your will be done and not mine. And as a result, you come and say, Lord, here are my plans. But I, you tell me what you want. You do it. You get it done. I want your plans in my life. And, and the way we get this done, church, because it's easier said than done, right? The way we get this done is that we need to understand the character of God. We understand who he is. There's a faith in who he is that's required. And we, Dane spoke about it this evening. He spoke about a good father, man who gives good gifts. When we realize that, that our father in heaven is a father who gives good gifts to us all the time, that he is a father who loves us with a steadfast, unwavering, unending, unconditional love for us, that Every time he acts towards us, he acts out of this. It's part of his character. God is love. And he acts out towards us in this love that the plans that he has for us is out of this love as well. And when we realize that we go, Lord, here are my plans, but if they're not yours, yours are far greater because you love me far more than I love myself. So much more that I have. I can gain from doing what you want for me. That's what's required. Unfortunately, though, when it comes to plans and the plans that God has for us, there's no website in which we can log on to and just type in our names. Joseph Rolf Harrison Prince. Yeah, that's my full name. It's only like one of me in the whole world, so it would just be me. I wouldn't have to search anything else. And, and then we would go there and we can click on it, and what we would have is we would come and there would be a day planner. How great would that be, right? So, Joe, at 9 o'clock, this is what you're going to do. Yeah, Hoppost 11, uh, this is what you're going to do. At 12 o'clock when you're drinking a chocolate series, Stumpy, this is what you're going to do. And this is what's going to happen, and, and, this is, and that's okay, for, fine for today, tomorrow, I've got some more for you. It'll be great, right? A little book, a little day plan in which we can go and check off this is what God wants us to have. God doesn't do that, right? There's this, there is never the sense of complete clarity on what to do each and every single day when it comes to God. But he has a plan, but there's never that clarity on something that we can go to, a website that we can run to. Why? Why doesn't God do that? Because if we had a website or a book or whatever it might be that we can go to and find out exactly what I had to do each and every single day to the specific details, when I needed to find something out, where would I run? To the website, to the book. I would never run to God. And God comes and he tells us he has a plan, but he gives us a lack of clarity to it. Why? Because he wants us to come and ask him. To give us a lack of clarity means that we have to go to God and find out what it is. We have to come and say, Lord, show me today. Man, show me by your spirit where you are moving today so that I might be a part of it. I had a lecturer who was fantastic at that. Show me, Lord, what I need to do today for your glory. And pray and seek and ask. It builds relationship with you and him and you'll find out because he has a plan and he wants you to do it. You just need to be listening, ready, going. But there is some, there is some clarity and guidelines in Scripture to, uh, to a degree, and we, we check one out in this verse. In this verse, we find out that, um, that there is this place in the city that we find ourselves in. God has a plan for us in 
the city that we find ourselves in. For you as the 6 p.m. service, God has a plan for you in this community. As individuals, God has a plan for you in this community to do something, to impact the surrounding areas. We've been challenged by this at the Ridge. Um, we've been, as you guys, I'm sure know, if you've been coming regularly, would have been hearing about the Sermon of the Mount. And one of the sections was being uh, salt of the earth and light of the world. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, I remember Mark preached the light of the world one here. Uh, and, and so we had this amazing time of, of hearing about the salt and earth. And, and we were really challenged by it. Let me give you a brief breakdown if you haven't been here. We, we, we just, when it comes to the salt of the earth, we are the salt of the earth. Christ doesn't say you must become it. You are it as a follower, as a pursuer, as a, as a Christian. You are the salt of the earth. It's just whether we're salty or not. And the, and a salty Christian, what, and what salt does is it preserves, it stops decay. And so as Christians and followers of Christ, one of the things that we need to do is we, and this, a few more others, but what we need to do is we need to stop the decay of the world around us. There's this call for us in the community that we find ourselves in to stop the decay around us of the injustices that are taking place. And we know that this is an individual thing, but also a community thing, because when we look at light of the world, we see that Jesus uses two imageries. He uses the first imagery of one being a, a lamp on a lampstand, Remember that? And that this, you know, this light is shining that can be hidden. This is us. We're in a particular room with particular circumstances, with a particular situation in which we are called to shine our light. But when individual lights gather together, the second imagery comes into play. We become a city sitting on a hill, shining brightly for all to see. When you as the six, when you as individuals are shining your light and when you gather together in a community serving Christ, we become a city on a hill shining brightly for all to see so that when those in darkness, those who are desolate, those who are hopeless, those who are not in safety of this house, see this light, see this city that's shining brightly and see the hope of Christ because of the work you're doing. And we were really challenged by this as a church. To a point that we had to ask ourselves, how are we doing here? We don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers. So how are we doing? So we asked ourselves this one simple question in order to determine of how we're doing in this area. And the question was, if we had to close our doors today, would those who are hurting, broken, poor, desolate, hopeless, be worse off than they were before? And we came to the shocking realization that there probably wasn't. That those who would miss us would probably be those who grokked up and walked through our doors on a Sunday. The rest wouldn't. And so we felt challenged by this, that it started to stir up in people's hearts going, man, I think God has laid something on my heart. There's this lady named Jo that started a soup kitchen. We had our third one yesterday. We called it Salt and Light Soup Kitchen Original, Right? And, but you know what? What are we doing is we, we're doing something in the community. We, we only, we've just knew so not many people know about us, but we serve between 15 to 20 people on a Saturday, between four and five. Man, and our, our ladies' ministry have, have started knitting jerseys and, and gathering old jerseys and stuff to give to those around us uh, that are cold. They've started a pantry for those who are struggling financially in our church itself so that we can give them parcels. 
something is taking place. And, and listen, as the Ridge, we are a bunch of average Joes. We really are. There's, man, there's 50 of us on a good day. We had 25 this Sunday. Holidays, right? But you know what? It's not about how big and how major the impact is. It's about how faithful we are with what we've been given. And we've been called to that suburb and we've been called to do something. And we need to bring our five loaves and two fishes and say, here, Lord, you do what you want. 6 p.m. What are you doing? If you had to close your doors today, would the community around you suffer because the 6 p.m. has closed their doors? Would the desolate be worse off? Would the hopeless be worse off? Or would they not? Or would your neighbors just be stoked that they don't have to listen to you sing on a Sunday? And I don't want to labor this point too much, but don't just assume that just because the trust is doing something, that means you're covered. You are still called as individuals to be faithful in what you are doing and as a community. How are you doing? And if God's doing in your heart, let it do. Let him work. Do something. Do it. The second thing that we see as a clear guideline on something that we need to be doing is that you've been placed in this community that's sitting here today to benefit the community that's sitting here today. We see this in Scripture. We, call, we are called the body of Christ. Man, the body, it's a, it's a common one that we use. It's, 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 it's got various aspects to it, toes, fingers, hands, mouths, and each and every single one of you somehow fit in this body. And you're called to be a part of it. The body still works if some of it doesn't. But it just doesn't work as at its full performance and its full potential as it needs to. And we see in Scripture here yeah, that, that every single one of you have a part to play. If you call this home, and maybe you call another church home because you're visiting, that's great. But that means you have been placed there as well by God in the season to do a work. And we see in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, it says, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who uh, portions to each one individually as he wills. Each, you have been given a spiritual gift for the season that you are in for the now by the Holy Spirit. And it's not a lucky packet draw. It's not that you just stick your hand in and see what you get. The Holy Spirit, God himself, has come along and gone, You need this gift, for I have this plan for you in this community. In this body here, I have a work for you to do. 1 Peter 4 verse 10 says, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully. That's what we need to do. Faithfully administrating God's grace in various forms. It looks different. You don't have to stand up here. You don't have to do what other people do. But you have a call to use your gift in your way that God has called you. Man, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7. And I realize as I talk about spiritual gifts this evening that there are a number of you that are going, I haven't a cooking clue what my spiritual gift is. I don't know what God has given me, and I don't know what I need to be doing. And, and the danger is that just because you don't know doesn't give you a, a way out of not doing. You're still called to be faithful with this gift. Remember, God doesn't necessarily tell us when we become Christian, here is your spiritual gifts that you need to do. Why? Remember, because he has wants us to come and ask him. Lord, man, I want to faithfully serve you. 
You have called me to be a, a part of this body, to glorify your name, to encourage the believers, to be a part of this body that moves so that your kingdom might expand. Lord, you have called me to do that. Please show me what it is and just serve. And he will lead you and he will guide you and get there. It's the same when it comes to how you're going to make an impact in this community. You might not have a clue on what you are called to do in this community. You might not know what the injustices are. Ask God to open up your eyes and he will show you. Lord, what injustices are taking place that I need to be salt towards, that I need to be making an impact towards? Stopping, preserving, going. And there's a strange aspect to these two things is that God has a plan for us to, and part of this plan that we do is that there's this welfare that we receive when we give others welfare. He says this to the Jews. Wealth to be a part of the welfare of the city. Pray for the welfare of the city because in it is your welfare. Why is that the case? Because you see, while Christ has saved us towards salvation, he has also saved us into a plan. He saved us into a purpose. And if we are to experience all that Christ has for us, if we are to experience all of Christ. There needs to be an aspect in which we are a part of the plan in which he has saved us to. Does that make sense? Man, to not do what God has given us is to lay aside a part of experience in knowing God in a certain way in which he wants you to know him. It's huge. It's big. 6 p.m., God has a plan for you. God has a plan for you. And I'm going to close off with this. Um, this is the most important thing I'm going to say tonight. So if you want to forget all the others and refocus on just this and take this home, this is the one that I want you to get. All right. Is we need to ask ourselves, can we take a verse that was given to a specific people 2,500 plus or minus years in a very unique situation about plan and hope and give it and make it about us in a Small service in the tip of Africa 2,500 odd years later. Can we make it about us? Can we really take this verse and give it? And I'm going to give you an answer that you're not going to expect, but it's a great one. And the answer is yes, but it's far greater than you've ever imagined. It's far greater than this verse is if you just take it by itself. And the way we're going to understand this is if we go to Daniel. Remember Daniel in the lion's den? Man, Daniel is situated in Babylon about 70 years after Jeremiah wrote this letter. It's nearly time for the Israelites to start going back. Time is running short, and, and Daniel realizes this. And so what he does is he starts to pray to the Lord. And he, he says this in Daniel 9, verses 1 to 3. He says, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, who, made, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures, according to the word of the Lord, given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord and I pleaded with him in prayer and petition in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. So he starts to pray. And he prays this long prayer in chapter 9. He goes all the way to the end of chapter tw uh, verse 23 and he comes to an end. And, uh, or maybe just before then he comes to an end. And God comes and answers him. Through Gabriel, a whole bunch of stuff takes place. And, and God answers him and says these words. 
He says, and I'll explain them, they're a bit hectic. He says, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgressions. To put to an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, these are great words, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up a vision and a prophecy, and to anoint the, a holy place. So here we go. 77s. Some of your translations might say 70 weeks, but con- uh, commentaries and guys that study this jazz and are very, very smart would come along and say 77s means 70 years times 7. He comes to Daniel and he says, the fulfillment of this prophecy will ultimately be done in 70 years times 7. Man, the normal 70 years that he made to, uh, through Jeremiah in chapter 29, that happens. We see the, Drew, the Jews start having their first wave back with Ezra 70 years later. But the 70 times 7, he says, this is ultimate fulfillment of this. 70 years times 7 equals 490 years. Do you want to know what happened 490 years later? Jesus pitched up. Jesus arrived. Church, do you want to know where your ultimate hope is? Where your ultimate future lies? Where your ultimate well-being is? Do you want it? It's in Christ. Man, do you want hope, church? Because if you do, you need to go to Christ. You need to go to Jesus because he says, I am the hope of the world. Do you want peace? You need to go to Jesus because he is the Prince of Peace. Do you want a future? You need to go to Jesus because in him there is life and there is an abundant life. Do you want a satisfaction that lasts forever? Go to Jesus because he says, I am the bread of life in which you will eat and never hunger again. I am the living water in which you will drink and never thirst again. Do you want a a purpose that lasts and echoes into all of eternity? Go to Jesus because in Christ you are his workmanship and his masterpieces in which he has planned good works for you to do. Do you want protection? Go to Jesus because he is the shepherd in which chases all the wolves away. Do you want to have a friend that is faithful? Man, go to Jesus because he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he calls you his friend. Do you want to love, to be loved by someone in your worst situation? Go to Jesus. Because he has a love for you that is lasting, that is true, unconditional, that is everlasting and steadfast and unwavering. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Man, you can take this verse, Jeremiah 29, verse 11, and you can take it out of context and you can apply it to your little situation that you desperately want. But if you don't see the greater picture, you're going to miss out on something that's so much greater. The ultimate future and plan and purpose and peace and satisfaction and everything is found in Christ. That's where the ultimate restoration is. Man, run to Jesus, church. Run to Him. Run to Him. And there might be some of you this morning. Some of you this evening. I told you I was going to do it. Some of you this evening that don't know Christ, that aren't Christian. But the call here is for you to come to Him. Man, you can come to Him. All you have to do is repent from your sins and believe in Christ and you will be saved. Seek Him and you will find Him. And the great thing about the gospel is that you don't have to clean up your acts. You don't have to become a better person first. Know that Christ died for you when you were at your worst. That's the love shown in the cross. No greater place that we can see this love. 
And maybe there's some of you that are Christian this morning, but man, you have done some things and you've wandered far. The call for you as well is to come back. Come into the loving Father. We sang this morning. Oh, this morning. We did sing this morning. But we also sang this evening that I am a child of God. And that does not change. And there is this call. We look at verses 12 and 13. It says this, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me, and you will find me, and you will seek me with all your heart. And here is it. Here it is for you. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you. I will gather you from all the nations and all the places that I have driven, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back. He wants to bring you back. He wants you to be back. He wants to restore you. But you have to come. And if you call out, he will hear you. He will, you will find him. It's beautiful. Go to Christ, church. Go to Jesus. For it's in him and him alone. Let us pray. Lord, we are so grateful this morning that, this morning, we're so grateful this evening you are a God who um, that has a plan for us. You have placed us in the season that we find ourselves in to do a work. And, and so, Lord, I pray uh, over the 6 p.m. service this evening that you would move in them, that, Lord, you would ignite a fire in them, that they would want to know your plans that you have for them, that they would want to be your hands and feet in this season, that they would take their eyes off Jerusalem and look at the now, that they would be a part of the work that you want to do, like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, uh, uh, Nehemiah, and Ezra, that you would use them where they're at. Lord, would you? they hunger and thirst for you, desire for you, run to you and find out what you want them to do. Lord, would you stir up in this community of people a, a desire to make an impact in the community around us? That, Lord, the 6 p.m. service would become salt and light in this community and do great things for you. That, Lord, our, 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 our people in the service would become so great in serving you and using their spiritual gifts. Man, that would have to start new ministries and do more because there's just so many people saying, I want to do, I want to serve. But Lord, I pray that they would run to you. Run to you. For in you, there is a future and a future alone. For you, there is this ultimate peace, ultimate well-being, ultimate hope. You are everything we need, and you alone give it. Help us to desire that. Help us to want that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.